Well, good morning. It's always good to be here, gathered with the saints to hear from God's Word. My name is Israel Adi. I'm an elder here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church along with Eric and Clayton, and it is a joy to be here this morning to share from God's Word. And I would invite you to open to the book of Ruth, to the book of Ruth. We will, well, I personally will be starting a series where I will be preaching about every five weeks from the book of Ruth. This morning, it's going to be a little different because I'm not going to go entirely into the book as we are accustomed to do uh, verse by verse, but I'm just going to do an overview of the book of Ruth, and I pray that you find it helpful and beneficial to your lives. This morning, I am going to read the first first five verses in the first chapter, and that should get us oriented towards the discussion that we have before us. So I invite you to open up your Bibles, use your device, whatever you have, Open it up to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. Listen to these words. Written for our admonishment, it says accordingly. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you grant us this morning to be here gathered together to hear not from man, not from human wisdom, but from divine wisdom. Father, we know that human wisdom is insufficient to help us understand who you are and what you have done for us. So I pray, Father, that you would use this time for your glory and to the praise of your name, that our minds would be struck and our hearts pierced by your never-failing, never-ending faithfulness in our lives. Father, we pray that you would do this by the power of your Spirit, upon whom we are utterly dependent. We ask these things through Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Early on in my marriage, I learned one rule about my wife, and it's don't make her wait. If I was supposed to pick her up, and she texted, texted me, where are you? My answer should have been, my car is parked in the cubicle to your left. That's how close and that's how 
uh, near I had to be. It wasn't around the corner. It wasn't pulling into the parking lot. It was there. I had to be waiting for her. She should not have waited for me. Now, in my sinfulness, I pushed this boundary uh, several times, and it wasn't helpful. It wasn't fruitful. And I know that it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you get the point. My wife, when it comes to making her wait, that was a big no-no. But if you ever ponder, you don't like to wait either. Especially when you are dealing with something that is painful and difficult. This past week, I received a call from someone who had genetic testing done on their unborn baby. And the prognosis for the child is not good. The test revealed and rendered an unfavorable result, and it seems that the child will have a challenging life. The joy of the newborn has been slightly dissipated by the uncertainty of the future. And I asked the person who called me, of how, what's the most difficult part of the news of that process? And they answered, it's waiting what hurts. I don't know what the future holds. It's hard to wait when you are going through difficult circumstances. As we dive into the book of Ruth this morning, the people of God, Israel, are asking a question regarding their waiting. The question that they are asking is, where is he at? Where is the seed that was promised to Eve and Adam? Where is the descendant that was promised to Abraham? Where is the king that Moses spoke about? Why? Because they are suffering. They are suffering both corporally and, as we will see in the book of Ruth, individually. The book of Ruth opens up with a timestamp, and it says, In the days when the judges judged, or in the administration of the judges. It marks the time, and this period is marked by chaos and turmoil. Several, several years into the existence of Israel as a nation, we see that the circumstances that surround this nation that was called to be holy are bleak and look very grim. They had promised to live in light of the Torah. They had promised to live in light of what God had revealed about himself, to live a righteous life, but they were not living in that manner, but rather they were adopting the practices of the nations that surrounded them. Instead of being a beacon to the dying world, the Israelite nation had, in essence, become just like the Canaanites. Israel had spiraled out of control and descended into depths of unimaginable depravity. We read about Gideon's son, Abimelech, who murdered 70 of his brothers. We read about Jephthah, who 
in selfishness and in pride, decided to imperil his daughter instead of serving her and seeking her well-being. He made a rash, unnecessary, foolish vow that caused the, that wounded his own daughter. And then we read of Samson in all of his rendezvous with the Philistine women. Then toward the end of the book, we read a horrifying account of a woman who was murdered through a vicious episode of gang rape. Afterwards, she was dismembered and her body parts distributed throughout the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, no one in the nation of Israel was safe. The nation that God had called to be a light to the nations was dark. And the people were asking, where is he at? Where is the king that will undo this mess? And just in case you are wondering, we aren't reading here about the activities of the Ninevites who were known to be ruthless, nor are we reading the script of a West Craven horror film. We are reading about God's covenant people who have been given a righteous law and who were acting though they were a lawless nation. Israel was just like the Canaanites. The book of Judges ends with an ominous ending, echoing the same words that are in chapter 17 of the same book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is how the book of Judges ended. Ends. The people had no king, and apparently no one was safe. Everyone did what seemed right to them. Not much has changed That means that there was no one who would bring justice, defending the defenseless, protecting them from foes, both foreign and domestic. There was no one who would rule them with gentleness and care. There were fears without and fears within. Just imagine if you lived during those times, you would also be asking, like the people of Israel, where is he at? Where is this king? Where is this ruler? The answer that we get from the book of Ruth this morning is this. In your waiting and in your trusting God, you have to keep trusting God because his faithfulness is unfailing. In the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of moments of darkness, the book of Ruth tells the people of God, you keep trusting God's unfailing faithfulness. You might not see the king tomorrow. You might not see the king next year. But because God has promised, you keep trusting that word because he is bringing about the fulfillment of his glorious Promises. You keep trusting God's unfailing faithfulness because God is working to accomplish His promises. And even when we don't understand the events that happen in our lives, just like the people of Israel didn't understand fully the events that were happening in their lives, they believed that God was bringing about His glorious purposes. Our God is not a God who will lie or go back on His word. 
That is the comforting message that we get from the book of Ruth. Trust God in his faithfulness because he is, his faithfulness is unfailing. And with that backdrop to the book of Ruth, I want us to get a bird's eye view of the entirety of the book of Ruth. In order to do that, I just want to focus on three themes. There are more themes in the book of Ruth, uh, good themes, uh, provocative themes about God's dealing with his people. But I want to focus highlighting three. The first is God's sovereignty. The second is covenant faithfulness. And then the third is the coming of God's king. God's sovereignty covenant faithfulness, and God's coming king. Well, the book of Ruth is an interesting book. The story is short enough to read in about 15, 16 minutes. And, uh, but the considerations that arise from this book are rich and numerous. It concentrates on the events that surround three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. The genius of the book of Ruth, it, it, it tells a great story through the ordinary lives of three individuals. There's not, the, the, the book of Ruth, it, it, there's nothing wowing about what happens. But in the way that it, that it describes the ordinary interactions of God's people, we get a sense of God's glorious Truths and promises fulfilled for his covenant people. Although the book is titled Ruth, if I could briefly summarize the book, I wouldn't focus on Ruth, but Naomi. If you notice, the book of Ruth is basically about the emptying of Naomi, which we just read here in the first five verses. She loses her husband and her two sons. And by the end of the book, in chapter 4, it's the filling of Naomi. Because it says in verse 17 of chapter 4, And the woman of the neighborhood gave him, that is Ruth's son, a name, saying, A son has been born to, not Ruth, but to Naomi. They named, himself, him, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth's story is about the emptying of Naomi and the filling of David and is amid these events that unfold in the filling up of Naomi that we get a glimpse into what God was doing to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham to, and the promise that he made through Moses about an offspring that would be a king over Israel. So let's look at the first theme, God's sovereignty. In the story of Ruth, the narrator, it's interesting because he doesn't refer directly to God uh, a lot. It's only on two occasions, in chapter 1, verse 6, and then chapter 4, verse 13. Such scarce references to God would make someone think or lead someone to think that God is not present or God is not working. There are no miracles mentioned in the book. There are no prophetic utterances yet 
On the further analysis of this book, we observe God's glorious hand working in and through every circumstance in the life of the individuals involved in this story. God is working through normal events. In chapter 1, we observe a famine come upon Bethlehem. That was by God's hand. This was a covenantal curse for the people of Israel when they disobeyed God's law according to Deuteronomy 28. Not only is the famine by God's hand, but the death of Elimelech and his two sons are also by the hand of God. You might say, well, that sounds harsh. That sounds like God is out to kill people. Well, it might sound harsh, but it is the truth. Because if there is one thing, one thing that is not under God's control, then God is not sovereign. But notice what happens through that death. Because if Malon and Kilion don't die, Naomi is not forced to go back to Bethlehem and Ruth is not eventually brought into the covenant people of God. God uses the death of Malon and Kilion to bring about the salvation of a Moabite who was a cursed people. That's how God orchestrates through the normal events of life. Furthermore, in chapter 2, we, Ruth encountering Boaz is orchestrated by God because Naomi and Ruth so happen to go back to Bethlehem from the fields of Moab when the barley season was upon them, when it was the time of the barley harvest. Yet it was that barley harvest that God used to introduce Ruth to Boaz, who was a relative and he was a potential redeemer. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. It says, And she happened, the narrator is using this word happen. In other words, think about what's going on. It so happened that Ruth came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Of all the people she could have ran into, of all the men in Israel, she happens to encounter the, the field of Boaz, who was a relative to Naomi. Lastly, we see that God intervened by granting Ruth a child. You remember, we read that in verse 4 of chapter 1, that the children of Naomi lived, Naomi with her two sons lived in the countries of Moab, in the country of Moab for 10 years. And so Ruth did not conceive in 10 years. So it could be that Ruth was barren to this point in her life. Yet God grants her a son. You say, what does this mean for us? It means that our lives are not under the control of a cosmic evil force. We actually don't need to knock on wood. We don't carry around good luck charms. We trust in the God who controls the greatest of galaxies and the smallest of atoms. That is the God who we serve and the God who we trust. The sovereign God of the entire universe. 
The Landon Baptist Confession of 1689 says, God, the creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least. That means that our past hurts, our present joys, and our future fears are not merely incidental happenings to us. God is working through every circumstance in our lives. The moments of deep struggle, we might say, this is useless. It's not. Because God is working in the very moment, ordinary events of our lives. During the dark days of the judges, the book of Ruth shows us that God was unfolding His eternal purposes by keeping and protecting two vulnerable women, guiding them to a righteous man who would bring about a gracious redemption. You might be thinking this morning, well, where where is he at for me? What is he doing for me? The answer to that question this morning is that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 7.25 says this, He is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through Him, that is Christ, since He always lives to make intercession for them. There are many things that have happened to us in our brief and momentary lives, and many things are yet still to happen to us. How then can we face a past that has scarred us and a future that frightens us? We face it trusting in God's unfailing faithfulness to bring about his promises to his people. When we don't know what to do, we trust in God's unfailing faithfulness because he is working in every circumstance of our lives. God is sovereign and in control. The next thing I would like to look at with you this morning is covenantal faithfulness, both from a vertical perspective and a horizontal perspective. While the first chapter, chapter, um, the first verse in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth speaks about of a crisis being that there was a famine in the land. If you skip down to verse 6, you see that the Lord had visited his people. The famine that once decimated God's people, God in his covenantal faithfulness visits his people providing for them bread. Additionally, we see God's faithfulness towards His people in the last verses of the book. We see we have a genealogy. We must remember that the book of Judges ended with that ominous statement, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, resulting in lawlessness and chaos. Yet here in the book of Ruth, we get a glimpse of, of the king that God is going to provide for his people. Ruth 4.13 says, The Lord gave Ruth conception, and she bore a son. That son was Obed, 
And his son was Jesse. And his son was David, a man who would ultimately be described as a man after God's own heart. The brook of Ruth is a bridge of sorts that brings us from the curse of the judges to the blessing of King David. Now the question is, did Israel deserve such a king? Did Israel deserve to be helped in such a manner? The answer is categorically no. Israel rebelled again and again. The cycles in the book of Judges is that God would uh, lift up a judge. Well, God would say, he would send pestilence to the people of Israel. The people of Israel would call out. God would lift up a judge. The judge would deliver God's people, and there would be relative peace and harmony. But Israel yet again would transgress the law. Yet God was faithful to his promises, to do what he promised to Adam and Eve, what he promised to Abraham, what he promised through Moses. God was faithful to bring that about. King David, Ruth's great-grandchild, would go on to pen words praising God's unfailing faithfulness. In Psalm 103, he says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to now our iniquities. That is God's covenantal faithfulness to his people. But there is another aspect to this. That's the vertical aspect. Now, there's a horizontal aspect to the covenantal faithfulness in God's community. Because God is not the only one who expresses faithfulness in the book of Ruth. We see that the the covenant faithfulness expressed in the book of Ruth is also exhibited in Ruth herself and in Boaz. Ruth expresses loyalty, covenant loyalty to Naomi. And Boaz ex- exhibits covenantal faithfulness to Ruth and to Naomi. Ruth decided to leave her country And decided to leave her father and her mother to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She was under no obligation to do this. Yet not only did she abandon her father and her mother to stay close, she also abandoned her people and she abandoned her gods. She decided to go to a foreign land, to a foreign people because of her loyalty to Naomi. Instead of choosing to remarry within her people, Ruth takes a vulnerable step because she's a widow and two, because she is a Moabite, part of the cursed people that were not allowed into the assembly of the Israelites. Ruth takes a vulnerable step, returning to Bethlehem where there is a potential for them to lack daily sustenance and great harm. Verse 16 to 17 of chapter 1 
is the greatest glimpse of Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, where she says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where your people lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will, there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth was selfless. She was covenantally faithful to Naomi. But Boaz also shows similar faithfulness. When Ruth and Naomi returned from the fields of Moab, they were in a vulnerable situation, unprotected and poor. Now, for the people like Naomi and Ruth, there was provisions in the Mosaic law that required those who owned fields to allow poor people to glean from the outer skirts of the field. Yet we see in chapter 2 and the end of chapter 3 that Boaz was faithful. And how was he faithful? Not just by allowing Naomi and Ruth to glean from the outskirts of his field, but he provided extra grain for Ruth and Naomi. He gave them water. He, he gave Ruth water and shelter. Boaz was selfless. Both Ruth and Boaz exceeded what was required of them in one of the darkest times in the history of Israel. You see, in this time, this was not nor a normal happening. What was happening is what we read in the book of Judges. People were dying. There was ruthless ambition. There was murdering. And there was lawlessness in the land. Yet what we see here is a glimpse of what the Israelite community was supposed to look like. They were supposed to look after one another. They were living in the spirit of the law because Boaz exceeded what the law required. What we see in the book of Ruth is God's covenantal faithfulness by providing Naomi a loyal daughter-in-law and a redeemer who lived in the spirit of the Torah. It's amazing that we get a glimpse of how selfless the community of God's people is supposed to act in covenant faithfulness toward one another in this book. God is working out his secret plan. God is working out his promises even when it's hard and, and messy. But he is working out that promise not in the absence of his people, but in their very presence. Just imagine if God had not given Naomi Ruth, she would have struggled to survive. Imagine if God had not given to Naomi and Ruth a Boaz. They would have been without redemption because the next near of kin refused, as we will see in chapter 4, to redeem Ruth. But come in, what does it mean for us? It means that God draws near to his people through the covenantal relationships he places us in. If you can imagine Ruth, Naomi without Ruth, the struggles that Naomi would endure were great. If you can imagine Ruth and Naomi without Boaz, they would have no redemption. But imagine BABC 
without John or Michelle or Sally and Bethany or Barb and Franklin or Shirley and Sandy. God brings people near, and I can go on, you get the point that God draws near to his people through the covenantal relationship he places us in. That's one of the one reasons we stress becoming a member of a local Bible-believing, gospel-affirming, proclaiming church. It is a member, it is, it is as members of this covenant community that we make commitments to oversee the discipleship of one another. When life is hard, as it was for the people of Israel at this time, we can trust in God's unfailing faithfulness and not only given us of himself, but also given us his people who will encourage us in our devotion to him. So that is the second theme. And the last theme that I want us to look at this morning is God's coming king. The coming of God's king is something that is stressed in the book of Ruth. I won't say everything in this short overview about the coming of the king, but I will just highlight certain points. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Ruth is a bridge between the depravity of the judges and the blessing of the Davidic kingdom because it sets sets us up with the necessary knowledge in order for us to understand the progression of God's redemptive plans and the coming about of God's appointed king. The book of Ruth gives us a glimpse of God's appointed king by providing both a contrast and an anticipation in the life of Boaz. Boaz, in a sense, both contrasts and anticipates the coming king. How does Boaz do this? Well, one, he is a foil to the judges. Whereas the the last of the judges that we read in the book of Judges were selfish and self-seeking, Boaz, on the other hand, is selfless. Boaz uses his position and resources not to gain, but to bless. He didn't seek to be served, but to serve. Just imagine if Naomi and Ruth encountered a Jephthah Jephthah or a Samson instead of a Boaz. We probably would not be speaking of Ruth and Naomi. Boaz was... A foil is a foil to the would-be redeemer. In chapter 4, if you turn there, you see that there, was, there is a man who is a would-be redeemer. According to the law, if a man in any particular family died and left behind wife, children, and land, it was the family's redeemer's job to marry the widowed wife. Take the land and protect the family lineage. So there was Elimelech who died, and someone in his family had to marry the wife, left behind the children, and care for the land. Now, Naomi is old, and uh, she can bear no son. And so the would-be redeemer is asked if he would redeem both 
if he would redeem the land that is left behind by Elimelech. But when he finds out that the land comes with Ruth, he reneges. Why? He decided not to take the risk because it would have created unwanted obstacles for his children and his future inheritance. Redeeming the property from Elimelech would involve providing food and shelter for Naomi and Ruth and any potential children that he would have with Ruth. And he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to be burdened by the responsibility to care for this, these women. And yet Boaz, knowing all these obstacles, knowing all these challenges, understanding that it was a, an investment that he was going to make, that it was something that he had to risk because who could guarantee that Ruth would not remain barren? He decided to take the risk anyway, even if it was costly. In these two examples, we see how Boaz foreshadows Christ. Boaz sees the vulnerability and the plight of both Ruth and Naomi are in. Their food is scarce. They have no one to take care of them. And Elimelech's lineage is in jeopardy. On top of that, Ruth is a Moabite. She is part of the cursed people. She's not allowed to be in the land. We'll discuss that in future sermons, but she was not allowed in the Israelite community. He understands that both widows are unable to help themselves. They need someone outside of them, a relative, to redeem them. So Boaz, in service to Ruth and Naomi, understanding their misery, redeems Elimelech's property and continues his lineage, which would ultimately include David, who was the promised king. Boaz foreshadows Christ. For Paul says in Ephesians 2, when we were dead, helpless, in a misery, in a miserable position, unable to help ourselves, we, like, Mo, like Ruth, were also cast off apart from the covenants and promises of Israel. Yet, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Just as po Boaz paid the price of redemption at grace cost, and sacrifice, so also Christ, when he paid the price of redemption for us. Through that price, Boaz brought Ruth into God's covenant family, and through Christ's price, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God forever. The book of Ruth reminds us that we can trust God's unfailing faithfulness even when life is hard and difficult because he has made good on his promise to send us a servant king who would both redeem and guide us in righteousness. And that king provisionally was David, but that ultimate king is Christ Jesus, the servant king. The king that Israel was looking for ultimately wasn't David. It was Christ, 
For David ultimately failed in similar fashion as the judges did. But Christ emptied himself, became a man, took the form of a servant, bore the pain of the cross, and redeemed us from lawlessness. In the progression of redemptive history, Christ has come. But church, he is coming again. As we struggle with pain, sin, depression, anxiety, lust, and many other struggles, we eagerly, eagerly, uh, eagerly await with the saints the return of our Savior. We say with the saints of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. For we believe that one day, God's place will be with man. He will dwell with us and we will be his people. He will wipe every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall, be, there, shall, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. This morning, as we continue our journey as sojourners, let us have the faith of Ruth, of Naomi, and Boaz, who trusted in God's unfailing faithfulness let us pray father we thank you because the your unfailing faithfulness is so great and marvelous you are a god who governs all things who has committed to yourself to us and has not repaid us according to our sins and father you have given to us the promised king king jesus help us as the saints of old place their trust in you, let us also place our trust in you now and forevermore. We pray these through Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.